Thanks for listening to the Faith Radio podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge. I'm Carmen LaBurge. I hope you enjoy. Thanks for joining us on this day after Thanksgiving. This is a special Best of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge on Faith Radio. Well, good morning again. It is a Friday, November the 26th. It is the day after Thanksgiving. And so, ooh, it's a day we can do what I like to call aftermath. So the aftermath of Thanksgiving includes a lot of cleaning of dishes and utensils and even spaces and places that don't ordinarily get used nor have to be cleaned. So the aftermath at my house um, includes all of that. The aftermath of Thanksgiving also includes math looking forward in terms of like doing our budgeting for Christmas. This is tends to be the day and certainly the weekend when we sort of lay out our plan for how we're going to approach the the gift part of the process in relationship to kids and grandkids and siblings and mom. And anyway, you get the idea on and on and on the aftermath of Thanksgiving. There's also the whole issue of leftovers. So I know I've told you this uh, on occasion before, but maybe Maybe this is the first day for you to consider what Carmen does with her Thanksgiving leftovers. So there is this technique related specifically to the dressing. And ours is dressing, not stuffing, because we don't stuff it in the bird to cook it. It's exactly the same thing, but we make it in a casserole dish, and therefore it's dressing and not stuffing. So our dressing recipe is really amazing and delicious, and everybody loves it. And so I make enough intentionally for there to be leftovers so that on days like this, We can get the waffle iron out, put one scoop of the dressing in the waffle iron, smash it down, get it all crispy on the edge, heat up the mashed potatoes and the turkey and the gravy, and have that as leftover brunch. So what are you having this morning in terms of your leftovers related to Thanksgiving? What is leftover in terms of giving thanks to the Lord our God? Let's leave none of that uh, on the proverbial table. Let's be sure we give thanks to the Lord our God with grateful hearts, a genuine attitude of gratitude, counting our blessings one by one, giving God literally his due in terms of Thanksgiving this year. All right, my first conversation this morning is with George Barna. We're going to actually talk about just living in the reality of the postmodern world today as secular humanism is on the increase. Just like kind of a look at the culture around us. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. Well, back with us again today is George Barna. We are talking with George over the course of time about the research done at the Cultural Research Center at Arizona Christian University. And they've done this really large study of Americans and our views of well, lots of things, uh, but specifically, you know, our religious views and in, in how we process information and engage in the world. So, George, welcome back. Well, thanks, Carmen. Always good to be with you. Yeah, so the part of the research that we're looking at today um, is how we as Americans 
um, are processing the world and really talking about worldview. So take us into this conversation about postmodernism and secular humanism. Well, you know, Carmen, as we mentioned in a, in a previous program we did together, the prevailing worldview in America is this thing we call syncretism that really characterizes about 88% of our population. That's simply where people draw from a lot of different worldviews and have this mishmash of ideas that becomes their foundation for decision-making because that's what a worldview does. It enables you to make decisions. It's the filter through which you see and experience the world and then respond to it. And there are many different worldviews we choose from, but two of the dominant ones tend to be postmodernism and secular humanism. Postmodernism is a worldview that we hear more about than maybe most of the others, and yet most Americans still don't know too much about it. It's really an extension of existentialism, and like many of the worldviews that are not based on the Bible, it's one that challenges biblical ideas about truth, about purpose, about the existence of God, about the meaning of life, about what success actually is, about why we live, uh, about the meaning of history. I mean, all of these things are challenged by postmodernism. And it's it's interesting to me, too, when you look at Americans, you find that uh, only about 1% or so, maybe 2%, would actually qualify as postmodern in terms of their dominant worldview. But you've got about one out of six Americans who draw frequently from postmodern thinking. So even though it's not the most compelling set of ideas to most Americans, it is one that we draw from pretty commonly. So I think what you're telling us, George, is although um, a person would very likely not describe themselves as postmodern. Like they're just not going to check that box if uh, if they're given a list. Um, you know, what is your worldview, or what's the what's the set of ideas out of which you're making your decisions? Very few people are going to check the box. Oh, I I am postmodern. My understanding of reality is a postmodern understanding. Um, I I actually uh, think. But if they, if you were to go down the list and say, do you? base your decision-making based on sort of the culture of the day. Um, Do you believe that human beings are primarily biological um, and that the corruption of the person is societal? Um, Do you base your truth in science um, or do you base your truth in the in the Bible as the revealed word of God? And we talk about uh, those kinds of questions. People will reveal that they are, in fact, postmodern. Um, in answer to many of those questions, uh, and, and when you start talking about a belief um, in the reality of God in terms of active right now, present and active right now, working out a divine will over the course of the scope of a uh, of a historical arc that we would call grace or redemption, I mean, that's just not for most Americans what they really believe, if belief is the way I live. Yeah, and I think what we're talking about here is the difference between self-identification and factual identification. So when we Mm. talk about self-identification, how we describe ourselves, who we think of ourselves as being, we do know that most Americans would say that 
well, I'm Christian. In fact, we know that 51% of Americans claim that they have a biblical worldview, even though only 6% do. So there's this humongous gap between how we characterize ourselves, not only in our own minds, but to other people, as opposed to the ideas that we really hold on to as being the ones that work best for us. And when we talk about something like postmodernism, that's a concept, a philosophy of life that dismisses large-scale narratives, what they would call the grand narratives. And so that's what Christianity is. It's a grand Mm -hmm. narrative that helps to explain why we exist and how life works. Postmodernism would say, nah, everything really depends on the conditions in which you find yourself. And so you have to uh, be able to navigate constant change, and it really is going to stem from your feelings more than anything else, from what comes naturally to you in that situation. And so, you know, these all-inclusive religious principles that a faith like Christianity proposes, not true. They're not real, and you ought not to buy into them. And that's why, for instance, people who are deeply immersed in postmodernism, they're actually offended by Christian evangelism. When Mm -hmm. somebody shares the gospel with them, they find it appalling. And so, yeah, it is a very different way of addressing life, regardless of what our self-identification might be. All right, we're talking with George Barna, um, and let me just ask you this question as George and I are going to take a very brief break. Have you thought about what you're thinking about today and then how you're thinking about that, the decisions that you have to make and what you're going to bring to bear on those decisions? Come to find out, we're actually, most of us, functional atheists. We we might say we believe in God, but we actually make our day-to-day decisions as if God is not. And we're functional secularists and we're functional postmoderns, even if we confessionally say we're Christians. How does that work? We're going to talk about how this actually works in reality in just a moment. All right, picking up our conversation with George Barna. Um, George, just to circle back briefly for folks who might just be tuning in, the reality is that many, many Americans, most Americans, something like almost 90% of American adults are actually crafting their own unique worldview. They're fashioning it from things that appeal to them from a variety of worldviews. How is that working functionally for people? Well, you know, when we look at how satisfied people are with their life, when we look at how satisfied they are with the direction that the country's moving in, when we look at what proportion of people say that they feel uh, completely fulfilled in life, one of the interesting things we discover is that the folks who are most likely to be up at the top of that continuum, saying that they feel very satisfied, extremely satisfied with those things, are people who have a biblical worldview. When we look toward the bottom of the continuum, it's the people who are most likely to buy into any one of these other worldviews who are saying that they're least satisfied or very unsatisfied with what's going on. And in the great 
middle portion of that continuum is where you find people who are, you know, what I was describing earlier as syncretists, people who have this cut-and-paste approach to putting their worldview together, and so they've got some of everything thrown together just to help them get through the day. Uh, they're, they're even confused about whether or not they're satisfied. So, you know, we, we've got this continuum going on. And when people buy into ways other than God's ways, it's not working, which, if you're a logical person, makes sense. God made us. God gives us purpose. God gave us a rule book for how to live, how it is that we can thrive from day to day. And if we choose to ignore or abandon or reject that and all these reasons he has for our life, including the purpose he's given us, along with the gifts and the skills and the abilities that enable us to fulfill that purpose, well, it's not terribly surprising if you're logical and rational and reasonable that you're going to struggle with life. So, um, so George, let me just confess that, you know, I see as like disintegrated and fractured. Another individual is actually viewing as sort of their handcrafted, customized mosaic worldview. And so me, for me to show up, and this gets to the evangelism point that you just made a moment ago, for me to show up and suggest that not only do I have a functional worldview that's that's integrated around Christ and around uh, who God is and what God has revealed and God's redemptive work, not only in my life, but in the course of human history. And then for me to say, it actually is the worldview, capital T, that is really offensive to a person who is just pragmatically pragmatically working out from moment to moment what they perceive to be the most attractive way to approach the conversation, the day, the relationship, the project, the moment. Well, well, sure, because when you look at these other worldviews, one of the other things they all have in common is that there's no such thing as absolute moral truth. God is not the basis of or even the very definition of truth. Uh, they would believe that human life has no value intrinsic value, and therefore the extension of that thinking is, well, there really can't be much purpose to it then. Uh, these other faiths tend to think all faiths are of equal value. There's no one faith that stands out. And for some of them, uh, you know, they would, like secular humanism, they would say, well, that equal value, by the way, is no value. Religious faith has no value. You know, Marxism, religious faith is actually harmful to humanity. You know, so depending on the worldview you're focused on, that would be their point of view. So it makes sense. But as you say, then you've got this very different group of people who are taking God at his word. And it's a group we call the integrated disciples because they've integrated God's truth into how they're trying to be Christ-like from moment to moment. And, you know, just based on the objective data, it's working for them. It's working better for them than these alternative approaches are working for the advocates of those alternative approaches. So, you know, if you really want to be objective, which is what most of these other faiths claim they are, and if you really want to go by the science of the data, which most of them claim they want to do, that's all pointing us toward God. I think that the witness and testimony of the authentic Christian or the fully integrated Christian, um, or whatever language we want to use here, I, I think that the testimony of being a person 
operating out of the peace which passes all understanding, like being a person of peace in the midst of the confusion and the chaos of the day, being a person of peace who actually makes peace in the world, that seems to me a very rich testimony. I guess I'm wondering, what does your research suggest in terms of what can I do, what can we do as integrated Christians in terms of reaching people um, to whom we are proximate in, you know, in the culture today? You know, you, you bring up a great point, which is that what we consistently find is that people don't get converted, if you will, by our words, our teaching, our preaching, as much as they do by our example. And so the best thing that we can do is to model for people the things that we believe and to just be very authentic about how we live with that and through that because people consistently observe us, and they're making judgments all the time. And one of the most confusing things for postmodernists, secular humanists, Marxists, Eastern mysticists, is when they see Christians who are at peace with life, with God, the world, all of these things, and we're trying to bless other people. When our perspective is that I am here to do what I can to serve others, because that's the example that I have from Christ, and that's what I believe really gives me pleasure and value in life, because that's what Christ would do. That is the strongest testimony of all. George, that is so helpful. I'm, um, you know, I'm, I'm sort of imagining here Christians who are listening remaining, remaining proximate in their life to people who are broken and whose worldviews are, um, you know, a cobbled together mosaic of uh, of broken pieces and parts and they think it works for them for a time we just have to remain there and pray and care and be ready be ready when they recognize that their system has no roof or you know it doesn't actually function because it's not whole it's not whole and it's never going to make them whole um so i just it's it's so helpful for you to um bring to us the research um, and the data that helps us understand the world in which we live, because each and every one of us is, you know, trying to apply the mind of Christ to the matters of the day, and you help us do that. So thank you so much. Oh, thank you. You guys can find George Barna, the research we've been talking about at ArizonaChristian.edu. You're looking for the Cultural Research Center. We'll be right back. I don't want to see an inflatable nothing to the day after Thanksgiving. All right, this is a uh, best of show on this Friday of Thanksgiving week. So we're giving thanks to the Lord for you and for his goodness in all ways. Um, So next up, I'm going to share a conversation that I had with John Mark Comer about his book, Live No Lies, Recognize and Resist the Three Enemies That Sabotage Your Peace. The good news is we have books to give away. So you can text the word book to 877-933-2484. And again, um, on this day after Thanksgiving, let's just all be sure we pause to give thanks to the Lord our God. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. Elves don't even make curly head dollies to the day after Thanksgiving.
Well, this is really fun to welcome John Mark Comer to the program today. His newest book, Live No Lies. He is the founding pastor of Bridgetown Church in Portland, Oregon. He's a teacher and a writer. You probably know him best as the author of The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. Uh, John Mark, welcome to Mornings with Carmen. It's so great to be back with you. Good morning. So uh, this was such a provocative way to open a book as a radio person. I loved it. So, <laughs> That's right. Oh, good. I almost cut right? that out. Right. So talk with us about how you open the book, because I think that when we think of how we consume information today, we do make the assumption that people are telling us the truth. And one of the things that you lay out right in the beginning is you can't always trust what you hear. Yes. Yeah, I tell the story at the beginning of the book that uh, a few people know, but has been a little bit starting to get lost to history of Orson Welles and the War of the Worlds, not the not the H.G. Wells, the original literary novel from the 19th century, but the radio adaptation. And there's this crazy story about how in the early 1900s, he adapted this whole novel for radio and it was, you know, very much theater. And it was the one of the first kind of mediums, as you know, to blend the line between fact and fiction, kind of some of the original fake news. And he wasn't trying to to uh, deceive anybody. He was just trying to create an entertainment program. But it's a very long story I tell in the book. But basically, a number of people turned in late to the show and heard about aliens invading the eastern seaboard and killing and wiping out people and, you know, fake FDR presidential break in voice. And they were used to hearing this from, you know, the war of Nazi Germany and all that kind of stuff. And people thought it was real. People actually thought that either aliens or Germany had invaded the eastern seaboard and America was being destroyed. And there was mass hysteria across the entire nation. And so I just kind of opened that as a little bit of a provocative and humorous story about the power of truth and lies and how far more easily manipulatable and deceivable we are than we would like to believe. So my mom was like six months old when this actually took took place in real time. And I remember my grandfather, who would have been 30 at the time. I remember him fast forward. You know, he's late in life. Um, I was in graduate school and I sat with him as he absolutely denied that we ever landed on the moon. And the reason that he because he's like, you can't trust what they tell you. Let me tell you what happened in 1938. And he told me this story that you tell in the opening of this book. He listened to that in real time and he trusted what he heard over the radio. And then he found out it was a lie. And that led to him not trusting a lot of other things in the future, including that we landed on the moon. So I do. That that is absolutely fascinating. There's just a lot of power in lies and there's a lot of power the bigger the lie or the bigger the lie seems. And so you really dig around in the power of the truth in Live No Lies. The book is Live No Lies. John Mark Comer is my conversation partner today. Talk with us about when fiction goes awry and this emotional tinderbox that you describe, because it does feel like we're in that kind of war right now. Oh, yeah. I mean, one, it's, it's a major problem. I mean, set aside spirituality and discipleship. This is hypothetical. Don't actually do that. <laughs> but, you know, it's a major problem for Western society as a whole. But I kind of approach it, you know, less through the angle of the culture wars, though there's some of that in the book, but more just through the angle of the teachings of Jesus. You know, Jesus, one of his most famous teachings was, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. But if you reverse engineer that maxim or teaching a little bit, 
he was simultaneously saying that we are in bondage to lies, that at the root of whatever sin is, and theologians, you know, uh, have have been debating what exactly sin is and how it is in our body and how we're born into it for thousands of years. And there's different answers to that question based on different traditions in the church and different times in history. But whatever sin is at some level, it's more than this, but not less, it is a bondage to a kind of lie, to kind of false ideas, to deception about reality, about what is real and what is good and what is beautiful and what is true. So I do a deep dive in the book into some of Jesus' teachings around the devil, uh, which are so contrary to what we expect. I mean, most people here today, you know, think of the devil and they just laugh at it as a, if they're honest, as a kind of pre-modern myth or a cartoon character or some kind of a caricature from Hollywood. But in Jesus' most in-depth teaching on the devil in John chapter eight, he doesn't mention most of the things that we would imagine or we'd expect him to talk about with the devil, whether that be demonization or some poltergeist thing or a tsunami or natural disaster, or even disease or death, though there's a place for all of that in the four gospels. But what he talks about is the role of lies. He calls the devil the father of lies, says you are a liar from the beginning. It says of the devil, when he lies, he speaks of his native of language, which is all going back to the story of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. So for Jesus, whoever this evil kind of creature is that we call the devil, he is first and foremost, his, his primary kind of method to wreak havoc in the soul and society is lies and deception from the beginning of time, from page three of the Bible all the way to today. So I'm sure that when you when you've thought about this, uh, Zechariah chapter nine is maybe not what leapt to the forefront of your mind, but we've been having conversations in our house about what Zachariah meant when he talked about, when he referred to us as prisoners of hope. And when he, when he talked about the restored, the restored people of God being prisoners of hope, you are juxtaposing that with the reality that everyone in our fallen and therefore natural state lives as a prisoner of lies. We live as a prisoner of death. We live as a prisoner of desperation. And in order to live as a prisoner of hope, you know, a, a significant exchange has to be made, and that's a gospel conversation as well. Mm-hmm. There is an active sabotage of my peace underway, this this war that is raging. Talk about the three enemies that sabotage our peace. So basically, the way I, I wireframe the book is an attempt to kind of recapture and update, not theologically, but kind of culturally for our modern era, this very ancient Christian pattern that we don't know exactly where it first started. Arguably, it goes back to the desert fathers and mothers in the third and fourth century in kind of North Africa. And they identified what they called the three enemies of the soul, which were kind of like a counter trinity to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, who were at war. If the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are lovingly bringing the kingdom, the rule of God that comes with the peace of God over our mind and our body and our community of the church and eventually the whole creation, then this counter trinity, the three enemies of the soul are, are bringing the exact opposite, the chaos of the kingdom of darkness. And they identified them as the world, the flesh, and the devil. And, you know, again, as a, as a millennial who spent my entire life in kind of these very secular West Coast cities, and I do a lot of work with young people, those three kind of ideas have been basically lost. There's a lot of Christians who are basically secular Christians, you know, and Christianity for them is almost like a Jesus version of Buddhism or of, you know, Christian self-help or whatever. 
And very few of our people in our generation think of spirituality at all as a war or a struggle or a conflict or a wrestle. And very few of us take seriously these paradigms of the devil. Again, we think of the devil as like this pre-modern myth that we've kind of, now we know better because we have science. We think of the flesh and that's just, a, that, that language doesn't even make sense to us anymore. We live in a sensual culture that's all about kind of hedonism and feeling good in the moment. And the world, we don't really even have a paradigm for. We prefer to talk about the arts and entertainment or economics or politics or systemic whatever. And so I'm trying to recapture this ancient paradigm because my conviction has become that these ancient Christians and the writers in the New Testament actually were far more, uh, far more adept at naming the reality of spiritual life than we are today. And that in our and our push to kind of set aside this military imagery, war imagery, conflict imagery, and create a spirituality of kind of Christian self-help, we've actually completely misunderstood reality, and we're suffering for it. All right, we're talking with John Mark Comer. We're talking about his brand new book, Live No Lies. We're going to continue our conversation in just a moment. Picking up where we left off with John Mark Comer, the new book is Live No Lies. We do have copies to give away today. If you'd like to enter that drawing, text the word book to 877-933-2484. Let's pick up where we left off. I think that uh, when you you speak so strongly about this war that is indeed raging for the soul— um, and you talk about this counter trinity, the three em- enemies that sabotage our peace, which is the framework of the book, the devil, the flesh and the world. Deception seems to me a huge part of the conversation. So can we talk about deception specifically? Yeah, well, I mean, Jesus locates deception in the devil and his most in-depth teaching. And if you just do a simple this is this would be a great use of 15 minutes of your time. Just go to BibleGateway.com or whatever and do a basic kind of word search on deception, deceit, lies, and then just just do the New Testament. You will be shocked at how many scriptures and warnings there are in the New Testament against deception. I mean, there are just, I don't have an exact number off the top of my head, but there are so many. And I start to list that. I start, I wanted to list them all in the book and it would have taken, (laughs) would have taken 30 pages, you know? There's so many warnings. Jesus and the New Testament writers see deception as at the root of our problem, at the one of the major challenges that we face as followers of Jesus. And, you know, if you think of Jesus and the temptations in the desert, it, the, that, that story in Matthew 4 and Luke chapter 4 of, of Satan coming to Jesus in the desert and tempting him and the famous story, turn these stones into bread, it's very hard for a lot of modern Christians to read because the temptations are not blatant. They're not like, hey, Jesus, here's an innocent person, murder him. Or here, hey, Jesus, here's $10 million, steal it. There are these subtle, uh, subtle kind of very um, thoughtful temptations, turn these stones into bread. Turning stones into bread, last I checked, is not sin. And Jesus regularly does miracles with food. So something else is below the surface here. And it's rooted to our, again, our bondage to lies, our bondage to sin. Um, I quote in the book, Ignatius of Loyola, the founder of the Jesuit order, who once defined sin as unwillingness to trust that what God wants for me is only my deepest happiness. 
So at some level, all temptation is temptation to believe a lie about reality, to believe a lie about what will actually make us happy and to let it go by another name than the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. I think that so clearly lines up with what we know about original sin, the temptation to believe that God is in fact not good and is is withholding some kind of good from us and and we should go and grab Mm -hmm. it for ourselves. Um, my listeners and then, know the, that and then I, the temptation okay. to redefine good and evil for mm-hmm. ourselves. You know, the, that Genesis story is par- it is the paradigm It is exactly what you just said. Well, and the move from being deceived to being deluded, where I have completely so exchanged the truth for lies that I now believe the lie and I and I live yes. the lie, which is, you know, not yes, contrary to what you're encouraging us to do. The book is live no lies, uh, recognize and resist the three enemies that sabotage your peace. Uh, my listeners know, um, John Mark, that I love things that come at the end of a book as a like delight and surprise. So the epilogue, I loved self-denial in an age of self-fulfillment. And then the appendix, and I want you to talk briefly about the appendix, a monastic handbook for combating demons. Because I got to tell you, that's some really good equipping. Oh, great. Yes. Yeah. So a hero of mine where that, where that, that uh, kind of not humorous, but where that uh, interesting language comes from, a monastic handbook for combating demons, is a fourth century desert father by the name of Evagrius Ponticus. Fascinating person. You can Google him later. All sorts of fascinating history. He wrote this book in the 350s called Talking Back, and the subtitle was A Monastic Handbook for Combating Demons, which is amazing. And by the way, you know, book titles and subtitles are actually not copyrighted, which is some weird, I don't understand the, the law behind that. So I could have, it could have been Live No Lies, a monastic handbook for combating demons, but my publisher wasn't very into that for obvious reasons. <laughs> but he wrote this book called Counter-Talking. And Counter-Talking, um, or another way that can, that Greek there can be translated as talking back, was language used by the Desert Fathers and Mothers, same people that developed this paradigm of the three enemies of the soul. And it was based on, again, the story of Jesus' temptation in the desert, Matthew 4 and Luke 4, where Satan comes to Jesus, he tempts Jesus, and what does Jesus do? He quotes scripture. Now, that's again, that's a little weird to interpret. A lot of people think, well, is that like scripture is a magic incantation, like you quote scripture and Satan will go away, or is it like Jesus is doing a Bible study? And what they said is, no, what Jesus is doing is his war with the devil isn't like Apollo and Zeus fighting it out in the sky with swords. It's a, it's, it reads like an like a intelligent conversation about truth and lies. And Jesus pushed back his fighting of the devil is Jesus refusing to get sucked into dialogue with the devil, refusing to have conversation around the devil's lies, and instead changing his mind, changing his thought patterns to truth from the scripture. So what Evagrius did is he developed what he called a monastic handbook, and it's really not a book, it's a handbook, where he would list out all of the lies that he identified that would come into his mind. He believed that thoughts could be demonically kind of animated, which again, to our Western ears, sounds bizarre, but then think about it. Have you ever had a thought that it's like the thought had a will of its own and had an energy to it? It it was like it wanted to be thought and it wanted to make you unhappy or anxious or angry or bitter or victimized or you know, anything. And he would say, actually, those thoughts come to us from outside of our own brain. They're animated by some dark spiritual energy. And the way that you fight back is you refuse to let those thoughts play in your mind and imagination. You refuse to let those videos play 
And instead you turn your mind to scripture. So he has eight chapters in the book that fun fact later became uh, the seven deadly sins of antiquity. Two of them were really similar. So later writers collapsed two of them together. So this idea of the seven deadly sins comes from Evagrius. And he developed based on these eight thoughts, you know, around anger or pride or whatever, all of these scriptures that he listed out, that he put to memory, that whenever that thought would come, whenever that lie would come, whenever that temptation would come, he would turn his mind to scripture. So yes, in the back of the book, I have a workbook where you can kind of go through the simple process to identify what are the lies that you have come to believe, whether they're from out there in the culture or in your own mind or your family of origin or your trauma, or your experience. And then what's a corresponding truth from scripture that you can put to memory. And when that lie comes, change your mind. And as a result, change your life. It's so good. It's so practical. It's so helpful. It's directly biblical. It's equipping us um, to do what we need to do each and every day. Uh, John Mark Comer, you can find him at johnmarkcomer.com. The book is Live No Lies. And yes, we're giving away copies today. If you'd like to enter the drawing, text the word book to 877-933-2484. John Mark, thank you so much for blessing us today with this conversation. The book is excellent. It's my honor to come on. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Friends, we'll be right back. Quick reminder uh, that we do have copies of John Mark Comer's Live No Lies to give away today. So text the word book to 877-933-2484 to enter the drawing. Um, I think a good question to be asking ourselves is, you know, what are the things in my life that are trying to sabotage my peace or rob me of my joy? And let's be sure that we're geared up to resist those. All right. So I'm tempted at the end of this Thanksgiving week uh, to say that's a wrap. But with all the wrapping that I have in front of me to do in anticipation of Christmas, you know, parents and then uh, those with whom I exchange gifts uh, and then the 12 we buy for in the next generation and the seventh we the seven we buy for in the generation beyond that you know babies are great um but christmas is this like dual reminder that they keep coming and so let me encourage you as i remind myself uh, right now that in the midst of all that needs to be done all that i feel like needs to be accomplished the long list between here and christmas I need to remind myself, and so I'll remind each of us and all of us, Jesus is the central focus of what we're doing, of who we are, of what we're doing, of where we need to have our attention drawn, not only this time of year, but every day. So let us not get distracted with all that is required of us as we turn our attention to the ways in which, you know, we celebrate throughout the season in the culture. Um, so many variations on the theme of Christmas. Let's be people who keep Christ literally at the center of all of it. Let's keep Christ at the center of our thoughts, the center of our songs, the center of our prayers, the center of our conversations, the center of our gatherings. The world needs light and the world needs hope. And Jesus delivers both, even as he delivers us from death to life. So let me encourage you on this day after Thanksgiving to give thanks to the Lord our God. And let us also be people who now turn our attention to the season of Advent to the coming of Christ and intentionally focus in on him. Have a great weekend and God bless.
I'm Carmen LaBurge. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge. Remember, it's your prayerful and faithful financial support that makes both the live show and the podcast available. Make your gift at MyFaithRadio.com.